0: Hi, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor in chief of the New Books Network, and I just wanted to tell you that the following interview originally appeared on Counterpoint with Jonathan Judakin, which is broadcast on WKNO FM. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Counterpoint. I'm Jonathan Judakin. In Memphis, and in America generally, we remain haunted by the history of race as a concept and racism as a set of social practices. To gain some perspective on our local history, it's useful to take a step back, both in time and place. Alice Conklin's newest book, In the Museum of Man, Race, Anthropology, and Empire in France, 1850-1950, to tells the story of how the discipline of anthropology and Paris' ethnographic museum par excellence the Museum of Man, are wound into the history of racial science and colonial conquest, but also ultimately played an important part in undoing scientific racism. Conklin writes in the introduction, In taking
1: up the story of the struggle to turn an older French anthropological tradition into a humanist science that studied peoples for the values each society creates rather than one that ranked them on charts or graphs relative to other races, this book joins a field of sociological and historical inquiry into the origins, institutions, and ideas of the nascent human sciences, as well as into the history of the idea of the proper relationship between science and politics in modern France and its empire.
0: Alice Conklin, I'm excited to talk to you about In the Museum of Man. Welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. Alice, you say at one point in your introduction that your analytical lens in this book is not a single institution or individual or set of ideas, but on taking a multi-generational group portrait to give listeners a sense of who's in the picture your book reconstructs and what this snapshot in time means. We're going to have to unpack the linked stories in your subtitle, starting with the history of anthropology in France from 1850 to 1950. Now in France, Who was doing anthropology in 1859? Where were they doing it? And what were they trying to explain? And I'm asking about 1859 because that seems like a useful date to fix our attention on the beginnings of your story.
1: By the mid-19th century in France, there were two groups intent on studying humanity. Anthropology means the study of, of humankind. The first actually called themselves anthropologists and were led by Paul Broca, an anatomist, by training. Thanks to Broca, France became a world leader in the careful measurement of skulls, which were assumed to be a stable racial trait. At the same time, Paris became the place in the world to study racial science. These anthropologists wished to understand the origins of the races, the early migrations back in prehistory, and to classify races in a hierarchy of intelligence. The second group, a group that included various explorers and naturalists, geographers, these were mostly men who focused on documenting cultural rather than racial diversity, an enterprise they called ethnography. Thanks to their efforts, in 1878, we actually see the founding in Paris of the first state-supported ethnographic museum, And this museum, along with Broca's School of Anthropology, were two of the most influential institutions out of which France's 20th century university-based discipline of anthropology grew.
0: So let's just drill a little bit deeper into where Broca's legacy itself comes from. When did people begin to study race? How were they studying it at least in part, Broca is inheriting a scientific racial science that comes from America and comes in part from people who are advocating a pro-slavery perspective on the basis of anatomy and the measuring of human bodies and the measuring of skulls in particular. Tell us a little bit more about that history.
1: Broca was frustrated by what he saw as the imprecision and the lack of true scientificity, convinced that skull size correlated directly to intelligence. That is why he he focused on measuring skulls in particular, because he felt this is the most stable racial trait which would actually unlock the key biological difference among the races and produce a hierarchy in which skull size somehow correlated with capacity. That was his hypothesis and that was um, what he tried to prove. I would say the difference between these early 19th century race classifiers and Broca was he developed ever more precise measurements to try to determine where one race began and the next race started and these measurements became increasingly inconclusive, and so he would keep coming up with new sort of new ways of measuring in order to identify a population as a particular race. He was more scientific, and that's why I use the word racial science. It was the best science of the day as opposed to scientific racism, which is a tendentious use of science for political ends, which is not what Broca himself was doing.
0: But by the end of the 19th century or so, more and more, racial science is filtering into politics. And I want to talk to you a little bit more about that. Tell us a little bit more about France at the end of the 19th century Tell us about the Dreyfus Affair. Tell us about the French Empire. Tell us about how race and racism were becoming a contentious point of debate in French political life. And maybe this time we can focus in on the date 1898, which is the high point of the Dreyfus Affair.
1: If we fast forward now to the end of the 19th century, France is embroiled in an affair that mesmerizes the world. The news of the Dreyfus Affair is broadcast everywhere What's at stake is a Jewish officer is wrongly accused of treason, tried, and cashiered by the French army. The affair produces a strain of anti-Semitic invective on a scale not seen before in France. Basically, France divides down the middle as partisans of Dreyfus' innocent demand that he be retried and his innocence proclaimed. And those who continue to support the army argue that the army is never wrong. In the heat of the passions generated by this affair, extremists on the far right claim that racial science proves that Jews are an alien race to France. And There's a certain irony here because, as I mentioned, racial science actually had in it, at least Broca's version of it, the potential to hit a wall and had hit a wall. By the end of the 19th century, by 1898, all those measurements had not yielded any clear information that would allow them to satisfactorily classify the races into neat bounded categories. Racial science seemed destined to die a natural death. Especially as Durkheim's sociology was emerging, arguing powerfully that society, not biology, shapes all individuals. Since the 1880s, France had vastly expanded its overseas empire in West, Central, and North Africa, in Southeast Asia, in the South Pacific. This policy of aggressive colonial conquest is certainly justified for racist reasons. It will open up new territories to missionaries, administrators, and settlers, many of whom will become ethnographers. But in this particular moment, racial science is not actively being mobilized, as it was during the Dreyfus Affair, to justify empire. And anthropologists are carrying out these measurements largely in the laboratory it's not easy to just go to a colony and start measuring people. The French don't have the infrastructure and they don't have the security to allow people to touch other people's bodies in that way.
0: When we talk about both the Dreyfus Affair and French Empire in general, though, part of the issue is that there's a group of oftentimes medically trained anatomists like Broker and then later figures who pick up that form of racial science, but there's also the broader propaganda, what you're calling scientific racism as opposed to racial science. And these things begin to filter one into the other by the end of the 19th century. But racial science itself is being called into question by the end of the 19th century, as you said, by Durkheim, who's insisting that society is what shapes all individuals, not biology. And that's really where the heart of your story take shape, is around precisely that debate. So let's zero in now on some of the key figures that you trace this through. In the group portrait that you write, let's start with the nephew of the great sociologist Emil Durkheim, Marcel Mauss. Who was Marcel Mauss and how does he figure in your story?
1: Well, my story really gets going after World War I when thanks to the efforts of certain Durkheimians, a new sociocultural way of studying human diversity, emerges and gets institutionalized in France. And here, Moose, who can best be described as an armchair sociologist of primitive religions, he emerges for the first time as a major player. Moose and a few other maverick scholars lobby the government to found a new university institute, for the study of ethnology linked to the ethnographic museum at the Trocadero. Most preferred the name ethnology to anthropology precisely because the latter term had become too associated with racial science. The point of this new institute was to train doctoral students for the first time, in the life ways of non-Western peoples by sending students out mostly but not exclusively into the colonial field to encounter their subjects firsthand. To convince Parliament to fund ethnology, Moos argued that France needed to train scholars who became experts in the so-called primitives of the empire in order for good colonial administration to take place. And here the, the timing is important. Post-World War I is an era when the League of Nations has been founded. Germany's ex-colonies have been turned over as mandates to France and Britain, among others. And there is now, in theory, going to be international supervision of colonial governance. The result is that the Institute of Ethnology and, in fact, the Museum of Ethnography are, in the 1920s, underwritten in great part by the colonies.
0: So Moose is picking up on shifts that are going on within the development of anthropology. He's Part and parcel of sending students out into the field to actually do field work as anthropologists, which is how many people might be familiar with anthropology. He's also bringing new methods, not only Durkheim's sociology, but also a particular approach to history and a, and a way of understanding human groups on their own terms. He had a really key partner who was head of some of the central institutions because there's no university anthropology at this point yet. And his key partner was Paul Rivet. Who was Rivet and what was his role in the development of both the discipline of anthropology and also the Museum of Man, the ethnography museum, the Trocadero in Paris?
1: Rivet's importance is twofold. It lies first in his organizational skills. Even more than most, he is the man who organizes ethnology institutionally. And second, he is important in his unwillingness to jettison racial science as a critical part of ethnology, even though he did not practice it himself. Rive, like most, is a socialist and a committed anti-racist. And he was extremely aware of the ways in which racial science could be politicized. Yet he also accepted that modern genetics seemed to be on the cusp of discovering what race was, biologically speaking, since at that point, most people had realized that measuring skulls had yielded no satisfactory answer. Now, Rivet enters my story principally as the director of the Museum of Ethnography, which he expands and renovates between 1928 and 1938. And in doing so, he borrows museographic methods from American and Soviet models of museums for the masses. He also made the decision to move into the museum alongside its huge collection of artifacts from cultures around the world, a large collection of human skulls that had mostly been collected in the 19th century. He then renamed the Institution the Musée de l'Homme, or the Museum of Man. This meant that this progressive 1930s museum run by dedicated anti-racists, which Rivet hoped would show the world how much non-Western peoples had contributed to world civilization,
0: So right there in the museum, you've got the institutionalization of precisely the struggle that part of your story is telling, the struggle between, on the one hand, the legacy of Paul Broca and this effort to measure and quantify and characterize race in terms that would be universally understood, that is, the language of science... And on the other hand, this effort to rethink the paradigm itself, to understand human culture and human differences in terms of social and historical forces that act on people, this is precisely what's playing out in the museum, in the character of Rivet, in the struggle that Mauss and Rivet are engaged in. But as you've said already, in the 1930s, until really until the rise of the Nazis, no one fully and completely Called into question, racial science. If you're just tuning in, I'm Jonathan Judakin, and you're listening to Counterpoint. I'm talking to Alice Conklin about her most recent book, In the Museum of Man, which tells the history of anthropology in France and how it was linked to racial science, anti-racism, and to France's colonial empire. Now, Alice, to get clear on the fact that this is a struggle that's going on in these institutions of learning and in these key museums as they're developing, the last starring role in the story that you tell is played by Georges Montandon. Now, if this was a film noir, he would be the character wearing the black hat, I think. That's how he comes out in in your book. Who was Montandon and how does he figure in the tale?
1: Montandon was a Swiss-born, German-educated medical doctor. He was the exact same age as Most in Rivet, so we're talking about three men who would have lived through the Dreyfus affair and who, therefore, were already quite old by the time the 20s and 30s came about. And he came to the study of ethnology quite late. In 1925 because basically he faced a prison sentence. He stayed in Switzerland, where he had viciously libeled somebody. He moved to Paris with his family and started publishing scientific treatises that have always been dismissed by subsequent scholars as completely marginal. In Paris, he joined the faculty of Broca's School of Anthropology. Now, Montandon was a sincere believer in Gobineau's theory that Race Drives Human History.
0: Gobineau is the author of a very famous treatise on the inequality of the races, which would have an impact because he argued that race is destiny.
1: And Gobineau published this in the 1860s. It had very little resonance in France, but it really was picked up much more by German intellectuals and in German-speaking lands. Now, Montandon's importance for my story is twofold. He is the lone French anthropologist who openly collaborates with the German occupiers during World War II, believing in their plans to use science to rebuild the New Europe along racial lines. The second reason he's important to my story is that in the 1930s, his treatises on human difference, which he carefully disguised as only one neo-Darwinian theory among many, get reviewed in the best anthropological journals of the day and pass muster. They are laced with tendentious arguments about race and the way race actually informs all of human history. And yet they pass muster in an era which prides itself on its, its scientific rigor. So the question I found myself grappling with was why was he not run out of the profession in these years? Why were his dangerous, racist, and ultimately unscientific ideas not spotted and condemned by fellow scientists? The answer is complicated, I guess, but it has something to do with the fact that, once again, what race was was so unsettled, and it also has to do with the fact that people like Mos and Rivet, who were socialists themselves, felt that, You had to keep your science and your politics separate. And when they saw the Nazis coming to power and abusing science, it only reinforced that sort of instinct that good scholars don't mix science and politics. And so I think they just thought that Montandon's theories would
0: die a natural death. So let's now zero in on precisely that moment, because in a sense, that's the moment when the whole story comes to a head. We've been tracking this struggle within anthropology between how some people thought that biology was the key to explaining human difference and how others, Moss and and Rivet, came along and called that into question over the course of the Dreyfus Affair and then into the interwar period. 1940, however, France is occupied by the Nazis, and you have the establishment of the so-called Vichy regime in France that agrees to collaborate with the Nazis in their ambitions to remake Europe and the world by instituting racial hygiene as the basis of their fascist politics. Now, that's the wide angle. You discuss this in close-up in terms of what happens at the Museum of Man, which saw many of Rivet and Mauss' students become part of the early resistance to the Nazis, but also in terms of what Montandon did during the war. So tell us this piece of the story, how the larger narrative really comes to its zenith in the Second World War.
1: During the war, several of Mauss' closest students chose the path of resisting the Germans and gave their lives in the service of fighting the occupier. Their choice to do so early in, and many of them, struck me as deeply informed by their field experiences and by their successful encounters, as I call them, with the so-called primitive peoples with whom they had lived. These students seem to have understood instinctively that Nazi racist ideology presented not just to France's survival as a nation, but the threat that the Nazis posed to the continuing human capacity for inventing diverse ways of being in the world. In other words, if Nazi racial hygiene had somehow triumphed, the thing that makes people most human, which is their ability to invent culture and to live inside cultures, would have been eradicated. Rivet left the country to rally help internationally for the resistance. Most, as a Jew, stayed on in Paris. He was stripped of his academic position, his, impar- his apartment. He had to get rid of his massive library. He was reduced to living in a tiny two-room apartment, but he was never arrested, interned, or deported. For most, this was the second generation of students that he had lost. The first had died in World War I, and he emerged from the war a broken shell of himself, with his faculties declining, some argue no longer intact. Montandon actively collaborated with the Germans, selling his anthropological expertise to deliver certificates of Jewishness that condemned individuals to death. So he was venal in the worst way. He also spied on anthropological meetings uh, in the Musée de l'Homme, in the Museum of Man, where ethnologists who were still in Paris were struggling with no heat, with no paper to, to carry on, as they called it, the French tradition, the best tradition of French science he spied on those meetings and then he tried to get the Germans to restructure France's recently founded anthropological institutions along Nazi lines as had been done in Germany the Germans didn't didn't bite on that one Montandon was shot at his home by the resistance in the summer of 1944
0: Wasn't this also a result of the fact that during the war, he's the racial scientist who says that he is the only one fully equipped to be able to determine whether or not someone is racially Jewish? And since racial laws were all quite complicated, in all of the most difficult cases, he actually had to issue a certification about one's Aryan status or not. And he did thousands of these over the course of the war
1: made a lot of money out of them. And of course, they were completely bogus. He is so slippery and so despicable in sort of pseudoscience that he championed as somehow true science. He was able, under Vichy, sort of his true colors came out, but In the 30s, he was able to use the language of science in such a a sort of perverse and yet subtle way that scientists themselves were, I think, just disarmed. They'd never sort of seen this before. It wasn't as crude as, say, what had happened during the Dreyfus Affair when racial science was also instrumentalized, but in a much cruder way.
0: Do you think it really is that deviant and perverse or is this in fact one continuing undercurrent that even though it's no longer dominant is still a really prevalent way in which people understand human difference? At least that's the way I understand it, that Montandon isn't so marginal. He's still a part of an important enterprise, which is this vanishing point, which is the desire to fix human beings as having a certain kind of essence and biology having the key to answering that. That question.
1: No, I think that's a great point. He's on the spectrum. The point I was trying to make is that for scientists who think of this as a legitimate enterprise, even they were rendered somewhat uncomfortable by some of what he argued, but they didn't have an answer. And he, he also said, well, this is just one more theory. There's no question that because race is so thoroughly entrenched, I think, in our Western way of seeing that Um, He could in some ways easily get away with this. It's perverse, but it's logical, too, in a way that we can understand. And it's because one of the things I wanted to show is just how difficult it is to dislodge racial science or racial way of seeing. And it's not as if the rise of cultural anthropology suddenly made all of that go away.
0: So in a sense, the story that you've been telling us is how beginning in the 18th century, a whole number of different figures were attempting to understand the nature of human difference and human variation. And we've seen some of the ways in which that plays out specifically in the history of anthropology and in key institutions like the Museum of Man. And part of what you've said is the spectacles through which Europeans came to perceive the world, how they understood themselves and how they perceived non-Europeans, those spectacles were completely tinted with the lens of race. The last part of the story is when do we begin to unthink that way of perceiving the world, something that's still an ongoing issue in our culture? And you bookend the story by talking a little bit about how the United Nations created UNESCO just after World War II. UNESCO, of course, stands for the United Nations Organization for Education, Science, and Culture. And one of their first initiatives was to mobilize scientists, including some of your anthropologists, some of the students of Rivet and most, some of the people in the background of the group portrait that you've painted for us, in a campaign to condemn racism. Now, in the U.S., we can understand that part of what propels the civil rights movement was black soldiers coming back from Europe where they were fighting against Nazi racism, but in a Jim Crow army. In short, it was Nazi racism that brought to world historical consciousness the horror of racism. So what role did anthropologists play in eventually helping to rethink scientific racism in the aftermath of the Second World War?
1: The UNESCO scientists who were involved in combating racism issued a statement in 1950 that condemned racism in part by saying that the meaningful differences among peoples are cultural and social, the result of history, not biology. And I argue that the seeds for this way of viewing the world, when predicated on cultural pluralism, emerged in the interwar years in France— I think if we were really to simplify, it's tempting to say, well, in the horrible illogic of history, Hitler was the person most responsible f- for sort of unleashing the cultural pluralism that we now value. And What I want to argue is it's not as if World War II can make that shift so abruptly because of the horrors of the Holocaust, that there were reasons internal to science that had to be developed, that took a long time to develop. In particular, without the lessons of most, a generation of French ethnologists, and by this point, these are are lessons that others have absorbed abroad as well, a generation of French ethnologists could not have argued that race was a social myth, which is is sort of the point at which I, I end the book. I also argue that World War II changed French anthropologists' relationship to politics. It alerted them in the most brutal way possible to the fact that science is not neutral and that at times intellectuals have to combat publicly the political abuses to which their knowledge is put, something that the men and women that I was studying in the 1930s had not thought necessary in ways that they hadn't understood perhaps when they first went out to the colonial field, the inherent racism of colonialism.
0: Alice, part of the complexity of the story that you deal with is also the complexity that we have to work through. I mean, You've taught us today that racism and the history of race as a category has a long-term legacy and that actually there's a long-term struggle to unthink the world through that particular prism. You've told us, secondly, that the relationship between science and politics is really complicated. On the one hand, the history of racism should give us some pause when we hear scientists pronounce on all sorts of different issues about all sorts of different topics, but that linking up science and politics in particular can have some nefarious consequences. But we can't disentangle those things either, because the third thing that you've told us is that ultimately human scientists, that is, these anthropologists also come to play an important role in the anti-colonial struggle. You've given us a lot to think about in terms of the legacy of race and science more generally. So thank you very much for helping us reflect on these issues.
1: Thank you, Jonathan.
0: Putting a spotlight on the role of scholars, academics, and intellectuals and how their work illuminates the issues we face locally and globally, CounterPoint is a monthly broadcast on WKNO-FM. To listen to the show in its entirety... Visit wknofm.org and click on the news menu item where you'll find a link to CounterPoint. You can podcast CounterPoint by visiting iTunes and searching for WKNO CounterPoint. CounterPoint is a production of WKNO-FM in association with the Spence L. Wilson Chair in Humanities at Rhodes College. Justin Willingham produces the show. I'm Jonathan Judakin.